0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show, from sports to the arts, from business to history, love, death, and of course, faith. In the years since the first Curious George book was published in the United States in 1941, George has become an industry. Besides the tens of millions in book sales, there have been several Curious George films, including the 2006 animated feature starring the voice of Will Ferrell as the man with the yellow hat. The adventures of Curious George are well-known all over the world, but few people know the exciting history of its creators, Margaret and H.A. Ray. And today, we're celebrating Margaret Ray, because on this day in 1996, she passed away. All of our This Day in Histories, by the way, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Here's Greg Hengler with the story.
1: And now we're going to have, oh, you know that friend. Who is that? Me Curious me. George. And this time we're going to do Curious George I Takes a that. Job.
2: I had that book one. I that. did. I did.
1: All right. Let's be very quiet now, all right? Here we go. This is George. He was a good little monkey, but he was always curious.
3: And George had a friend, the man in the yellow hat.
4: Practical, unflappable, loving, forgiving, patient. The man with the yellow hat is who we all would like to be. Curious George is who we are well-meaning and disastrous, impulsive and forgetful, selfish and creative, and in constant need of forgiveness. He may be the most human character in post-war literature. And he arrived with nothing, a refugee to become a worldwide sensation, the ultimate American story, and one worth remembering. But in truth, Curious George almost didn't make it onto the page. Here's Curious George publisher at Houghton Mifflin, Anita Sylvie.
5: Everybody thinks Curious George is such an American icon, and of course he is. But he was created by German Jews who lived in Paris, took him through Brazil, and then brought him to the United States. So he's as much of an immigrant as anyone. There are George's adventures But then there are the Ray's adventures.
4: This is the story of Curious George creators Hans Augusto, or H.A., and his wife Margaret. Hans Reyersbach was born in Hamburg, Germany in 1898. And almost as soon as he was able to grab a pencil, his artistic gifts were evident. Here's Ray biographer Anne Ashmore.
6: Hans was drawing from a very young age. He loved to look at the world and try to replicate it on paper.
4: Here's the Ray's trusted friend and literary executor of their estate, Lei Liang.
6: Hans was
7: a dreamer, and he was a genius. He spoke seven
6: languages, he could learn anything, and he could do everything. The family was well off enough to send him to a private boys' school. 20% of their student body were Jewish boys from the same sort of business, professional, middle-class, upper-middle-class families. He was often bored at school. He was so smart that he just caught on to his schoolwork. He was constantly
3: drawing.
4: Here's author of The Journey That Saved Curious George, Louise Borden. In
3: 1914, World War I broke out. Hans, at the time, was 16 years old. Two years later, he was drafted into the German army. He was put in a medical unit,
6: probably because he was studying to be a physician.
7: And every night... He would have nothing to do, he would take an astronomy book and go look at the stars. And he would see it doesn't make sense because the way the constellations are connected does not reflect the shape. So then
6: he reconnected the constellations. Of course, later on in life, that led to him actually teaching himself celestial cartography. His book, The Stars, A New Way to See Them, has helped many people like him who found those traditional guides to be not quite as useful as his were.
4: Margaret Waldstein was also born in Hamburg, not too far from Hans. And like the Reyersbach family, the Waldsteins were Jewish. Here's Hans and Margaret on their first meeting.
1: They're both from Germany. I knew her when she was a child. Uh, at her father's house... She doesn't
6: remember it. Uh, She came sliding down the banisters, and uh, I was standing downstairs with her older sister, and there she came. That's how I met her.
7: (laughs) Hans was dating her older sister, Mary, at that time, because Margaret was nine years younger than Hans.
4: Though Hans and Margaret would stay friends, it would be years before their paths would cross again. When Germany lost the war, 20-year-old Hans went home to Hamburg and found work making posters for the local circus as he continued his medical degree.
8: In November 1923, a single dollar is worth 4 trillion marks, and the end is not in sight.
6: Hans came back from the war and tried to resume his medical studies. But the economic conditions in Weimar, Germany at that time were just so bad.
4: After six years of unsteady work, Hans packed his sketchbooks, his paintbrushes, and his pipe and headed to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, on a ship to work for his brother-in-law, who owned an import-export firm. When he wasn't working as a restless bookkeeper, Hans spent his free time traveling up and down the Amazon River, watching the monkeys and drawing them. A decade after Hans left Hamburg, the German people became desperate for change. Their hopes were thrust upon a new leader named Adolf Hitler in 1933.
0: And when we come back, more of this remarkable story of Margaret and H.A. Ray here on Our American Stories. return to our story of Curious George creators H.A. and Margaret Ray. And we tell stories of all kinds here on this show, from sports to the arts. And your stories, too. They're our favorites. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org and we'll put them up on the air. It's 1933 and Hitler's meteoric rise to power crescendos when he becomes the Chancellor of Germany. Let's return to Greg Hengler. Now in her 20s,
4: Margaret, who studied art at the famous Bauhaus in Germany, worked in an ad agency as the first of the Nazi laws began to pass in the Reichstag. As a result, Margaret lost her job because of her Jewish background. It was at this time the spunky redhead thought of her old friend who was living abroad. Here again is Le Leon, Margaret, and Anne Ashmore.
7: Hans and Margaret, they sort of kept in touch as to who was doing what. Through this grapevine, Margaret heard that Hans was recruited to go to Rio to be a bookkeeper. She told her mother that Hans Ray is a damn fool. Uh, He's working for the family as a bookkeeper, and he's so talented. Uh, I'm going to go to
6: Brazil to marry him. And off she went. She had gained experience in advertising. I think she felt good about that. So when she got to Brazil, all she needed was Hans's art to combine with her knowledge of the advertising business. And she knew they were going to be successful. Hans had
7: no idea that she was coming. So the telex went out to say, meet me at the dock. And she said, oh, hi Hans, long time no see. By the way, I'm gonna get you out of your family's business and we are going to start something on our own.
4: Hans wrote in his diary, great change in 1935, former girlfriend from Hamburg arrives. Don't underestimate the power of a woman. That August, Hans and Margaret were married and shared an apartment in Rio with two pet marmoset monkeys who were always getting into mischief. During this time, Hans began to sign his work, H.A. Ray. It was much easier for clients in his new country and it was a name to remember. Months later, the Rays crossed the Atlantic with their monkeys to celebrate their honeymoon in Paris. But the monkeys didn't survive the journey and the honeymoon in Paris lasted four years. During that time, one of the Rays' favorite things to do was visit the zoo. Margaret would bring her camera and Hans his sketch pad. In the spring of 1937, the Rays visited the World's Fair in Paris.
6: He went over to the Brazilian Pavilion. As he described it, there were some walls that were bare, and they asked him if he could create some maps. Well. He had been creating maps of Brazil in their advertising agency, so they hired him to do those. He was working on them one day and got a little tired. And so to amuse himself, he drew a picture of a giraffe.
4: The outspoken Margaret dropped in on Hans unexpectedly.
6: He tried to hide the cartoon so that... You wouldn't think he was goofing off.
4: Of Here's Ellen Ruffin, curator at the Grumman Children's Literature Collection at the University of Southern Mississippi.
3: She said, oh, that's
6: really good. You need to do something with that. So she encouraged
1: him. This is the very first copy of the very first book we did. Rafi et le Neuf Saint-Je, which means Rafi and the Nine Monkeys. My husband had done some cartoons for a French newspaper. Cartoons about the giraffe. And a French publishing house, Dalimar. They'd seen those drawings, and they liked them. And couldn't we make a children's book out of it? And uh, we needed money. So we said, sure we can. And we sat around and tried it. It worked fine. Immediately, it appealed to us. I did the text. My husband did the illustrations.
4: The publisher Jacques Chiffrin wanted a sequel. This time, the Rays chose to focus on a baby monkey named Fifi.
8: And that monkey's name was?
1: Well, there in France, it was Fifi or something. Very sh- stupid name, no good name. Many years later, it became here. Curious George. It was a very good name.
4: But as the manuscript about a curious monkey was progressing in 1939, war began in Europe. The near-distant danger was fast approaching.
3: When Hitler's tanks crossed the border of Poland on September 1st, 1939, war was declared on Germany by England and France.
6: The rays were in Paris. Because the country had just declared war, no one really knew what to expect.
4: Everyone anxiously awaited Hitler's next move.
3: No one really knew what was on the horizon at that time. Hans was back at work in their apartment, creating a title page. In the corner of the title page, he signed his name and also the date, January 1940, Paris.
6: It was everything Schifrin wanted from the sequel.
1: Then Hitler's invasion to Holland. In France.
3: The invasion of May 10th changed the scene in France
8: greatly. Parisians are no fools. They're not blind to the enemy within their gates. Police check up for suspected persons.
7: They were German Jews holding Brazilian passports. So everywhere they went,
1: they were suspect. Somehow, they had found out that we were born in Germany. From that moment on, we were spies. The chief of police, who was our friend, said, look, it's very good to protect you here. You better go back to Paris. When we came to the station, two big, fat men were standing there, put their hands on my husband's shoulder and said, you do not leave. They started looking through our luggage. They took hours and hours. I asked, what do you want from us? What are you doing here? They said, shut up. It was a very bad situation. The last suitcase they opened at the bottom, there were books we had done. That moment, the whole atmosphere changed, you know, the heat was off. They let us go. I'm pretty damn sure it was George
4: who saved us there. Curious George had indeed saved the Rays. Here's Hannah Diamond, author of Fleeing Hitler, and Anne Ashmore.
5: The Germans were making headway, invading the northern part of the country extraordinarily quickly. This came as a huge shock to the French civilians because the government and the press had been very clear to them that this could never happen.
4: Wartime regulations made it very difficult to leave Europe.
6: Thousands of refugees were already flowing in through the city from the north. People were trying to get out of the way of the army.
5: There was never any formal announcement that told people they should leave Paris. People were really left to their own devices to make that decision. For Jews, and particularly foreign Jews like the Rays, the consequences of a German invasion of France would have been something they were very keenly aware of.
6: If you look at his work diary, he's trying to go through the process to get the papers together, to get the means together. And of course he's delayed day after day after day. So as the German army gets closer, their options are less and less.
8: The first air raid of this war on Paris was made by well over 200 Nazi bombers and resulted in the death of more than 250 people, the majority of them civilians, 10 of them schoolchildren.
5: The June 3rd bombings were the first time that really Parisians felt that they themselves could be a target. But it's not until the 10th, 11th of June when people realise the government's leaving the city that we see huge numbers of Parisians taking to the streets.
0: And when we come back, the final segment of this remarkable story the story of margaret and h.a ray and curious george this is our american story And we return to the story of curious George creators H. A. and Margaret Ray. The Rays were living in Paris during the Nazi air raids in June of 1940, and they realize they're gonna have to leave the country. Here's Margaret Ray.
1: We had to head somewhere we wanted to go to Brazil because at that point we were Brazilian citizens. We had no car at that point and trains were not running anymore and bicycles was the only way to get out of Paris.
7: Margaret said to Hans, go get two bicycles. But by that time, the only thing that was for sale was a tandem. So they tried riding a tandem. Margaret, after two minutes, says, I'm not riding this with you, Hans. He went back to the shop and asked the man, sell me parts. Hans is a genius. He could do anything. He assembled two bicycles. Marcus said we just carried the few essential things that were important to us. By the time they fled Paris, George was a finished product.
5: By the 12th of June, Parisians could hear the cannon fire of the front, which really was about the last possible moment people could leave.
3: Hans recorded in his calendar diary that they left the city at 5 a.m., You could hear the tanks rolling
7: in as they were bicycling out. It was how close they came.
3: They pedaled south about 48 kilometers to a town called Etamp. The next morning, they pedaled 32 more kilometers to Aquabui. Certainly, it was perilous being on these roads. Two days after they passed through a tomb, the Germans bombed the city and 400 people were killed.
1: The cars got all stuck on the road. There were miles and miles. But with bicycles, we could get by everywhere. So bicycles seemed to be the ideal thing.
5: Nothing had prepared towns of the South for the extraordinary volume of people people were looking for someone to blame. We know that there was a lot of anti-Semitism.
7: They stopped at different farmhouses where they were sleeping with the animals in the stables. To count on the goodness of people's hearts who looked at them and they had this German accent, yet they allowed them to stay the night. And they give them eggs, give them butter, and give them bread.
4: In June 1940, more than 5 million people were fleeing on the roads of France. After 70 miles in the saddle and the manuscript of Curious George tucked securely under Han's winter jacket inside his bicycle basket, the Rays finally made it to the train station in Orléans and boarded it on through Spain to the capital city of Portugal, Lisbon, known then as the City of Refugees. On July 21st, the Rays boarded a steamship packed with refugees for a 13-day trip to Brazil and waited for passage to America on another ship. After two months of waiting, the Rays began the last leg of their journey. Then, on October 14th, 1940, four months after they bicycled out of Paris, passengers began to point and cheer. There ahead was the Statue of Liberty, the landmark of freedom.
6: Margaret would always refer to the United States as the good old U.S. of A. They wanted to come to the United States because they felt they could be free to
3: express themselves any way they wanted. Hans later stated, you never forget the day you come to America. The memory of seeing
7: the Statue of Liberty That in itself was so freeing. And to them, America was the land where anything is possible. That if you work hard, it's the land of opportunity.
3: They are unknown, they are not wealthy, but they're carrying that manuscript about a curious little monkey who had a friend, the man with the yellow hat.
4: That chilly October day in New York Harbor, Hans, Margaret, and curious George were on their way to a new home as U.S. citizens with stories to tell. George wanted to get out. He hurried through the building and out through the roof. And then... He was lucky to be a monkey. Out he walked onto the telephone wires quickly and quietly over the guard's head. George walked away. He was free. Curious George was published in the fall of 1941, a year after the Rays landed in America. It sold over 27 million copies and has been translated into more than 14 languages.
1: We did only what we liked. And and by a a nice coincidence, the children liked the same thing. But it really was a coincidence. We did not aim for that.
0: Did you talk to children?
1: No. Why should we? We couldn't learn anything from them. Curious George
4: Goes to the Hospital was published in 1966. Here's Hans being asked about the seventh and final Curious George book.
1: Tell us about Curious George in the hospital. Did it start because you had a child who had to go to
5: the hospital? No,
6: we, uh, we don't, really don't have children. And, but you uh, have Curious
5: George uh, still. But
6: uh, Yes, it is sort of a child, and it's one of the children who take care of their parents, you know. Uh, we are in the monkey business, you might say.
4: Hans Augusto Ray died in Boston on August 26th, 1977, at the age of 78.
1: It was Hans Ray, my husband, who was a genius, who did uh, all the illustrations and the book, and uh, was a better part of the family anyhow. So I propose, let's have a toast to Hans Ray. Cheerio. Here's to Hans.
4: Margaret lived to celebrate her 90th birthday before she passed into the most curious of worlds on December 21st, 1996. But the afterlife of the Ray's creation continues to charm and inspire each new generation with the tales of what has become a cultural icon. "'I'm proud of you, George,' said the man with the yellow hat." I guess the whole world is proud of you today. It was the happiest day in George's life. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
0: And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. And what a story this one was. You never forget the day you come to America, this couple said. And my goodness, anyone who's come here from another country to live doesn't. They were not known, they were not wealthy, but they carried that manuscript. You can't make this one up, folks. The story of Curious George and, of course, Margaret Ray, one of the creators, who died on this day in history in 1996. And all of our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses, go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. The story of Margaret Ray and her husband, H.A. Ray, and the story of Curious George, here on Our American Story. We
9: safely
10: walk to school without a sound.
0: And we continue with Our American Stories, and we love talking about sports here on this show. And today we have the story of Chris Everett, one of the best female tennis players to ever pick up a racket. She was born on this day in history in 1954. And as always, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are beautiful in life, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale... Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And now on to the story of Chris Effort.
9: All of the players that I played were in tears on the court. Frankie Durr was a wreck, you know, and and Leslie Hunt was was really pissed off. (laughs) I don't think we wanted to see anybody who was 16 years old outshine us. Part of the reason they resented her
7: was when she was 16, she was, uh, you know, a, l- a little snippy. She didn't
10: smile too much. She had her nose a tiny bit in the air then. All these other women are saying, why should we let this amateur play? She beats us and then she doesn't even take the prize money that we won. I think was what
9: Chris was kind of representing to us, that she could set us backwards if she won. See, if an amateur won and we just started the tour, what does that say about our tour? it It was just difficult. I'm feeling all these emotions in the locker room. I'm thinking they hate me. They're snubbing me. I was very intimidated by them. We had a meeting during the Open, and I said, we have to stop this. She's the greatest thing that's happened to women's tennis. She's going to be our next superstar. Those were some of the
11: voices of the best female professional tennis players ever. But at the beginning of a tennis tour in North Carolina in the early 1970s, little Chrissy... Chris Evert made her big debut. As a 15-year-old, she defeated reigning US Open champion Margaret Court at this tournament. Everyone was stunned. She was so young and yet beginning to outshine those that had been competing as professionals for years. It was slightly embarrassing to say the least. But the mature ones, the professionals, who truly loved tennis grew to understand what she would do for the sport and for all female athletes. Little Chrissy Evert soon became known as Cinderella in sneakers and Little Miss Sunshine. At the young age of five, her father, Jimmy Evert, a professional tennis player himself, began tennis lessons. Her dad made it fun for her. He wanted his daughter to have a hobby that she enjoyed. Everett told ESPN he'd say, okay, 10 over the net and I'll buy you a Coke. But, of course, no matter how encouraging a parent is, a child still wants to make their parent proud.
9: You know, I think a lot of it is, is uh, wanting approval. Um, I know, I, I played tennis for a long time for my father. You know, he was my coach and my inspiration, and I wanted to please him. Not that I didn't enjoy it, I did enjoy it, but for a long time, when I was a kid, you find an adult that uh, is willing to sacrifice a lot for that child. And is their greatest supporter, and hopefully they don't draw, they don't cross the line into putting too much pressure on the kid. I mean, my dad never got mad at me when I lost a match. Let's put it that way. So that, that made me love him even more and want to do even better for him. But it's also it's it's just a need inside, and I'm not quite sure. Uh, I'm not quite sure it's a good thing. It's a normal thing, but it's that it's that hunger, that need. Uh, you know, to I guess to excel in one thing the fact that her dad never got mad
11: at her when she lost was essential to her striving and by the age of 10 she had started playing junior tennis and by the age of 11 she was nationally ranked by 1969 she was ranked number one in the US for girls under 14
9: because I played in the juniors and it's not like all of a sudden at 18 I hit the pro circuit without any experience behind me or any hope what happened was you know I started playing junior tennis when I was 10 years old and When I was 11 or 12, I started winning 12 and under tournaments. When I was 14, I always was the best in my age group. And that sort of, that confidence builds. And then when you join the Pro Tour, when I joined the Pro Tour, my first pro match was when I was, I think when I was 13. I went three sets with a woman who was like number three in the country. When she was 13. Now, having your father as a coach is not something everyone
11: can do. But she so admired and loved her father, it came easy. In fact, after winning Wimbledon at the age of 19, he was the first person she called.
2: When the phone finally did ring, I heard this little voice at the other end of the line saying, I won. With that, I got all choked up and I couldn't speak. And the next thing I heard was, Dad, are you all right? (laughs) But can you imagine your 19-year-old daughter calling you from England and saying, hey dad, I just won Wimbledon. Every time I think about it, it still brings tears to my eyes.
5: Chris
11: became a pro at the age of 18 in 1971. She was ranked either number one or number two in the world from 1975 to 1986. That's a total of 260 weeks. Everett was also named the Associated Press Female Athlete of the Year four times. In 1974, 75, 77, and 1980. Now, Chris, she was different than her other competitors. Amidst the sass and mental breakdowns of many athletes of that age, Chrissy Everett kept her cool. So cool, in fact, that she was crowned Little Miss Icicle. Or the Ice Maiden. Her competitors would flip off refs, throw towels, and throw fits. But not Chris. Full of grace and femininity, she played tennis as a lady. Not only that, but she was small and dainty. Not as strong as many other female athletes. Here she explains how her father helped
9: her. My father at a very young age had instilled in me, do not let your opponent see your emotions and see how you're feeling because they'll use that fear. If they see a temper, they'll say, aha. So I was, that's why I was very, the Ice Maiden, and I think that frustrated a lot of opponents because they were trying to figure out, you know, what I was feeling. And the other thing was, I, I am not of the mold of a Jimmy Connors or a Billie Jean King in the sense that, you know, I, I didn't feel like a star out there. I didn't feel like I had to entertain the crowds and, and show my personality. I was more, I was a very introverted person. Everett went on from there to
11: win 18 major championships. That's the third greatest in women's history of tennis. Her main rival, Martina Navratilova, was her complete opposite. A bulky and intimidating Czechoslovakian, this rivalry is one that has gone down in history. 80 matches, 60 finals, 14 grand slams over 16 years with these two champions was epic. From 1975 to 1986, one of them was the number one. Without one another, they would never have become the athletes that they did. They would make each other cry practically every other weekend of course with this rivalry and how early chris started playing there was some mounting pressure she had shot out of the gates with such power and ability
9: that people expected much of her
11: and martina had gotten really good
9: well i'll tell you martina after she took over number one she beat me 13 times in a row and I was a mental case. After a while, it was when I walked down the court, I was beaten. It's like, I'm gonna lose this match, you know? But that was 13 times in a row. Then the 14th time, I beat her in a tournament at Florida. Then the 15th time was, well, it's not the 15th, but the, the second time after that was the French Open when I did beat her. Fear of losing drove me. I mean, it was not the thrill of winning. It was, but maybe because I had been number one for some time and I knew everybody was gunning for me. So after a while, I was playing not to lose.
11: Chris was the first male or female tennis player to win 1,000 single matches and compiled the second-most career match wins of 1,309. Everett retired after 17 years, having won 92% of her matches, an astounding number, best in history, male or female. For one 13-year run, she won at least one Grand Slam title, but... With all of these accomplishments, it wasn't until she had a child of her own that she found more meaning in her life.
9: i tell you what, winning Wimbledon was the greatest experience for about a day or two. I mean you're on a high. It doesn't carry over. I mean the next month you're on to St. Louis playing a tournament. You're not riding on that exhilaration. Having a child for me is joy 24 hours of the day. You know, I love, I mean, I, I found my niche. I feel like I'm a mother, you know, and I feel like I'm a, a, I really enjoy being a mother.
11: And even with the blessing and love of her children, she knows that even they will not always be with her. Here's Chris Evert, one of the most successful athletes of all time, sharing some of the deepest and most vulnerable reflections of her
12: life
9: my i feel like there's another there's a niche that i haven't quite found and it could be a spiritual niche i i'm not quite sure i can't pinpoint what it is but i'm not you know i I've, I've there's something else out there for me that's that's going to take place you know when my kids are in school and and i'm going to look around and, and see hey you know i've got all this free time on my hands what is important to me what really what do I want to do Billie Jean and I've talked a lot about that because she's she turned 50 last year and she's uh, all of a sudden the last year to really it's hit her you know the spiritual you know she's really evolving and and very happy and at peace with herself and and uh, I think it takes a long time to find that I think it takes a long time whether you're in your 40s 50s 60s whatever and I haven't I haven't quite pinpointed and found it yet You know, because I've been a tennis player, I've been a wife, I've been a mom, but I know there's something else for Chris. This is Faith
11: Garcia reporting to you from Our American Stories.
0: Great job as always, Faith, and what a story Chris Everts is. Born on this day in history in 1954, always are this day in histories, brought to us by the folks at Hillsdale College. Chris Everett's story, in a way, women in tennis's story, Billie Jean King and Martina being the other two female titans of this sport. The Chris Everett story, here on Our American Stories.
2: Out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Oh, Santa Claus is coming to town. Ah, look here. Yeah. He's making a list and he's checking it twice. He's gonna know who's been naughty or night. Nice. Santa Claus.
0: This is Our American Stories, and it's Christmas time, it's Christmas season, and every once in a while you just have to have Ray Charles make the music we love swing, and he could make anything swing. What a singer, what a song, and this hour you're going to get some real treats. The story of David Bowie and Bing Crosby, and how that little drummer boy Peace on Earth song came to be. It's what a song and what a story. That's coming up in the hour. Irving Berlin and White Christmas. The story of a Jewish man who writes the quintessential Christmas and Christian song. And then last but not least, the final segment of this hour, a Charlie Brown's Christmas and how CBS executives almost didn't let it get to air. And you're going to love that segment. And right now, we want to tell you a story, a serious story. We're going to start with a serious and then get to the, to the fun stuff. But, you know, we have soldiers all around the country serving during the holiday season. And so we wanted to bring them this story about soldiers in Christmas. And it's a terrific story. And we found it, actually, from the Great Falls Tribune and a writer named Kristen Inbody. And it's about her time with a former POW, a prisoner of war during World War II, named Keith Ginther, who passed away in 2014. Her piece was titled, Christmas at War, a POW recalls Silent Night. We asked Kristen to record it for us, and she did. Let's take a listen.
12: I knew Keith Ginther liked gladiolas, he grew them by the hundreds, and he was a bachelor farmer, and he was quiet, and that's all I knew about him, although I would known him all my life. One year, around Christmas time, out of nowhere, he just started telling me the story. I wrote it up, and he carried it in his walker for years. He died in 2014. And I think he was surprised after being quiet for so long what came out, but he was proud too.
2: Silent
8: night, holy
12: night. When the United Methodist congregation sings Silent Night by Candlelight on Christmas Eve, perhaps it will mean the most to the former POW among them. Though he loves the most famous of carols, Keith Ginther, 90, dreads Christmas. He joked that it's because he has to wear a dress shirt and tie, but it's really the memories that come with Christmas. In December 1944, Ginther became one of the 23,000 Americans captured or missing by the end of the Battle of the Bulge, Germany's final and ultimately unsuccessful offensive on the Western Front. He began a 150-mile march into Germany, 67 years ago this month. He remembers feeling humbled in defeat, even more so as the POWs met German artillery, pulled by horses, or one truck pulling another on its way to the front. How could these guys hold the upper hand, the Yanks wondered. We sure weren't very happy, he said. The column of POWs passed through a countryside devastated by war and damaged by Allied bombing. At one village, the POWs had to clear rubble so German artillery could pass through. An American bomber pilot joined the prisoner ranks. These people seemed to be more hostile to airmen whom they blamed for being bombed, Ginther said. The Germans harassed the downed pilot. They had rushed the sides of the column trying to grab him. The villagers were starving, exhausted, and angry. When the hostility was at its worst, all the prisoners had reason to be afraid, though none so much as the captured bomber pilot. Yet at that moment, an American in the ranks began singing Silent Night. night. Pretty soon, the Germans were singing Silent Night too. So it calmed things down, Günther said. Halfway through the first verse, he could hear the words in German, too. If not for the song, which for one moment brought a measure of peace to a small corner of Germany, I don't really know what would have happened, he said. The guards would have tried, I guess, to protect him.
0: And thank you, Kristen, for that reading. And again, that's Kristen Inbuddy, who writes for the Great Falls Tribune. And she was writing about her friend, former POW, during World War II, named Keith Ginther. And he passed away in 2014 when we did our Pearl Harbor Hour earlier in December. We spent some time on soldiers who'd passed in the past few years. There are so few World War II vets left, and we like to celebrate their lives. Coming up, celebrating Christmas, you're going to hear a great story about Bing and Bowie, the glam rocker and the crooner from the 1930s. And my goodness, what a story this is. And more, including White Christmas and its writer, and some of the best and worst versions ever recorded of White Christmas... And last but not least, this hour, the story of a Charlie Brown's Christmas and how it almost didn't happen. This is our American story, celebrating Christmas. More after these messages. <laughs> So. This Our American Stories, and now it's time for the story of a song. It was one of the most successful duets in music history. It may also have been one of the oddest. One performer was a 73-year-old crooner from the 1940s who wore cardigan sweaters. The other, an androgynous 30-year-old British glam rocker. Bing Crosby and David Bowie could not have been more of a contrast. They came from different countries and different eras, had different ideas about music, life, and the world. But the surreal story of how these two unlikely collaborators came to make one of the world's most memorable songs is itself a Christmas classic. It turns out that Crosby was on tour in Great Britain at the time, so coming up with a theme of his upcoming Merry Old Christmas special for CBS was easy, Christmas in England. Bowie would be one of several hip guest stars, along with the model Twiggy and Oliver star Ron Moody. As an added incentive to lure the popular Bowie into the mix, producers agreed to promote the video of his latest single, Heroes. Bowie agreed, though it wasn't the promotion that closed the deal. David Bowie's mom loved Bing Crosby. That's why he agreed to be on the show. Crosby, it turns out, had teenage children, and they were big Bowie fans. Such big fans that they insisted on being on the set to see the avant-garde rocker for themselves. And so on September 11th, 1973, they got their wish. Quote, the doors opened and David walked in with his wife, Mary Crosby recalled several years ago. They were both wearing full-length mink coats. They had matching full makeup and their hair was bright red. And we were thinking, oh my God. Bing's son Nathaniel remembered there was tension on the set early on and that some producers weren't very pleased with Bowie. Quote, The whole thing almost didn't happen. The producers told Bowie to take the lipstick off and the earring out. It was just incredible to see the contrast. Well, Bowie acquiesced. The work began. The writers of the show wisely worked the intergenerational awkwardness of the musical collaborators right into the script. The premise of the skit was simple. Bing Crosby walks through an old London mansion to answer the door. It turns out the young man who just rung the bell was David Bowie. Here's the exchange.
8: Hello. You the new butler? <laughs> well, it's been a long time since I've been the new anything. What's happened to uh, Hudson? I guess he's changing. Yeah, he does that a lot, doesn't he? Um, oh, I'm David Bowie. I live down the road. Oh, Sir Percival lets me use his piano when he's not around. He's not around, is he? I can honestly say I haven't seen him, but come on in. Come, come in. But, uh, come on in. Are you related to this person? Well, definitely, yeah. Uh, oh, you're not the, uh, poor relation from America, right? Ha! <laughs> Gee, news sure travels fast, doesn't it? I'm Bing. Oh, I'm pleased to meet you. You're the one that sings, right? Well, right or wrong, I sing either way. Oh, well, I sing too. Oh, good. What kind of singing? Well, mostly the contemporary stuff. Do you, uh, do you like modern music? Oh, I think it's marvelous. Some of it really fine. But tell me, uh, You ever listen to any of the older fellas? Oh yeah, sure. I like John Lennon and the other one with uh, Harry Nilsson. Ooh, you go back that far, huh? Oh Yeah, I'm not as young as I look. (laughs) None of us is these days. In fact, I've got a six-year-old son and he really gets excited around the Christmas holiday Mm -hmm. thing. Do you go in for any of the traditional things in the uh, boy household Christmas time? Oh yeah, most of them really, yeah. Presents, tree, decorations, agents sliding down the chimney. What? I was just seeing if you are paying attention. <laughs> Actually, uh, our family do most of the things that other families do. We sing the same songs. Do you? I even have a go at White Christmas. You do,
0: huh? And
8: this one. This is my son's favorite. Do you know this one? Oh, I do indeed. It's a lovely thing.
0: And by the way, what a great idea to have two multinational music stars playing themselves and pretending not to know one another. What's your name? What's your name? And they're mocking each other. By the way, they're mocking their own fleeting pop fame. And as you hear towards the end of that scene, they're now exchanging sheep music. And the sheep music they're holding is for this song called The Little Drummer Boy. Well, by the way, in this story, this is when everything turns south. It turns out Bowie hated the song. Well, let's hear more from Larry Grossman, writer, producer, and all-around music man, and the man who worked on Merry Old Christmas.
8: We had decided that we wanted them to do a duet of a Little Drummer Boy. And when we told Bowie about the number, he said, I won't sing that song. Uh, and we said, why? He said, I hate that
0: song. He said, if I have to sing that song, I'm, I, I can't do the show. And so what did they do? Well, they did what musicians do. They improvised. Here is Buzz Cohen, another producer of the merry old Christmas special. We decided the best way to salvage the arrangement was to do a counter melody that would fit in between the spaces and maybe write a new bridge and see if we can sell him that. And it all happened rather rapidly. I would say within an hour we had it written
10: and we were able to present it to him again.
0: With less than an hour's worth of rehearsal time, Bowie and Bing nailed the performance. A few days later, after the taping, Crosby said of David Bowie, he sings beautifully, has a beautiful voice, and he reads lines well. And that's high praise for a man who knew more than a thing or two about voices and reading lines. Peace on Earth, Little Drummer Boy would turn out to be one of the last songs Crosby ever recorded, as well as the last Christmas special he would ever make. Just a month later, Bing Crosby died of a massive heart attack after completing a round of golf. One month later, posthumously, Bing Crosby's Merry Old Christmas aired on CBS. The special was introduced by Bing's wife and widow, Catherine. In the intervening years, the song became a Christmas staple. It was released as a single in 1982, and it continues to chart in the Christmas season around North America and Europe. It became one of the best-selling singles of David Bowie's career. That's the story of how Peace on Earth, Little Drummer Boy came to be, We have a few very talented songwriters who performed some miraculous musical surgery to thank for it, and David Bowie's mom, and of course, the God-given talents of two of the most unlikely and most beloved performers of their respective generations. And so we leave this story of a song here on Our American Stories with Peace on Earth and the Little Drummer Boy. Take it away.
8: Born King to see, rum pa rum pa Our finest gifts we bring, rum pa bum pa rum, bum pa rum pa bum Dun- pa rum pa. on Earth,
0: can it be?
8: And years from king now, see, perhaps we'll see.
2: Our finest gifts we Of glory See the day, day, of, glory. See the day the King of, of the name
8: Of Living peace so
2: peace
8: Peace on earth When we come Every child made aware every child must be made to care care enough for his fellow man, man to give all the love that he can i pray the my wish be will come true for my child and your child too, I'll see my day of glory. I'll see my day when men of good will live in peace, live in peace again.
0: This is our American story, the story of a song, the story of Bing and Bowie.
8: Our finest gifts we bring Pa-rum-pa-bum-pum pum pum Peace on earth
0: Can it be
8: th- Years th- from th- now th- see, th- Perhaps th- we'll th- see Our see finest the gifts day we bring Of
2: glory of When we
8: come Every child must be made aware Every child must be made to care Care enough for
0: Our American stories, and today we're telling the story of a song. And since it's Christmas time, we thought we'd do it about one of our most beloved Christmas songs, and that's Irving Berlin's White Christmas. Now, Irving Berlin was a Jewish immigrant from Russia who came to America fleeing anti Semitism. That's right, the man who gave us White Christmas, one of the most popular Christmas songs of all time, was Jewish. By the way, he also wrote God Bless America, and he was from Russia. Only in America, folks. Irving Berlin had no formal musical education. He could not read or write music, and taught himself how to play piano. In fact, he only used the black keys. At one point, Berlin even boasted of his ignorance of music. He said that because he didn't know the rules of music, he was actually free to violate them. Berlin wrote over 1,000 songs, many of which have become American standards. The one we are focusing on today rises above them all, along with God Bless America. It's hard to write one like that in your lifetime. Berlin wrote dozens. Most of us know the Bing Crosby version of White Christmas. That version sold over 50 million copies, and it is still the best-selling single of all time, along with one of the most recorded songs in history. In 1942, it spent 11 weeks on the top of the Billboard charts. The first performance of White Christmas by Bing was on Christmas Day, 1941, on NBC radio show called the Kraft Music Hall. This was a mere 18 days after the tragedy at Pearl Harbor. The U.S. had officially joined the war. Soon, very soon, we would be sending thousands, hundreds of thousands of our sons overseas. In 1942, Bing traveled abroad to perform for our troops. Which song did American G.I.s ask for the most? You got it, White Christmas, a song that reminded them of hearth and home. Bing said, quote, I hesitated about doing it because invariably it caused such a nostalgic yearning among the men that it made them sad. Heaven knows I didn't come that far to make them sad. For this reason, several times I tried to cut it out of the show, but these guys just hollered for it. Although Crosby dismissed his role in the song's Success, saying later that a jackdaw with a cleft palate could have sung it successfully, he was associated with it for the rest of his career. Sadly, the original recording from 1941 was lost, but was later re-recorded in 1947. Since then, it has been covered by a number of others, including Sinatra, Presley, Ella Fitzgerald, even Bob Marley and the Wailers other covers of this song along with Crosby's have sold over 150 million copies. Let's hear a few of these renditions. The American punk rock band Bad Religion, known for their harmonies and controversial lyrics, tried to make this their own. Okay, maybe that one's not playing around the old family tree. Just could be. Here's another unexpected version of White Christmas by Bob Marley and his Wailers. Okay, maybe that one's not the one we're listening to around the Christmas tree either. Jesse's sitting there going, that can't be Bob Marley. I don't think it is. It can't be Bob Marley.
2: Really? I
0: could be wrong. I I think you're wrong. (laughs) I think he's trying to sing White Christmas here, and it's just not what he does. He's not singing from the right space, the right place. Hey, let's take a listen now to Elvis Presley's White Christmas.
2: One I used to
8: know. Where the are and to hear in the-
0: and see, that's the thing about trying to record a song that's just perfect. I mean, these are great people. You know, Bob Marley, Elvis Presley. I'm not sure about bad religion. But these are some of the greats. And when you try to add your own twist to something that's just straight and perfect, sometimes you just have to leave things alone. It's like some movies you shouldn't do a remake of. You just should leave them alone. That's why our favorite will always be Bing's, because it's just it's sung straight as an arrow. Bing gets out of the way, gets out of the way of the words, and just sings it. Fellow composer Jerome Kern once said of Irving Berlin, and we're going to get to that in a bit, uh, Bing Crosby's version, Irving has no place in American music. He is American music. And a similar thing can be said about White Christmas, Christmas, and this version of Bing Crosby's classic.
8: About 25 years ago, Mr. Irving Berlin strung together a clutch of words and music that had become sort of a special sound of Christmas. To a lot of people. Now, if I may, I'd hey, like. Hmm?
1: You're talking about White Christmas, aren't you? Yeah. Well, we were just wondering, since there are so many wonderful voices on the show, we we thought it would be fun to take a take a vote and, and see who would sing it.
8: Nope. As I was saying, uh, Mr. Berlin wrote this song uh, 25 years ago, and through Dad hmm?
2: about White Christmas.
8: Not a chance seems to be an excess of zeal here this evening. I applaud zeal, but after all, there are certain things. Uh, mm-hmm. Bing, uh, For, forget it, Bob. Hit it, Nick. I dream of a white Christmas Just like the ones I
0: used to know And by the way, a little side note, White Christmas won Irving Berlin the Academy Award for Best Original Song in 1942. Irving Berlin actually presented himself with the original song Oscar at the 15th Oscar Ceremonies on March 4th, 1943. When he opened the envelope and saw his name, you see he was the presenter, Irving Berlin told the audience, I'm glad to present the award, I've known him a long time. By the way, that was the last time a presenter was actually in the running for an award. Leave it to Irving Berlin to write that kind of history. We will go out now with Bing Crosby's very last recording of White Christmas. This recording is from his last TV appearance on a Christmas special filmed in London in September 1977. It was on this same Christmas special that Bing performed The Little Drummer Boy with David Bowie. Bing died of a heart attack just a few weeks later. This special aired on November 30th, 1977, shortly after his death. As you can hear, Bing's voice never lost its richness. I'm
8: dreaming of a white Christmas just like the ones
0: I. This is our American Stories, the story of White Christmas, of Irving Berlin, and of course, Bing Crosby. More after these messages. And children listen
8: to hear sleigh bells in the snow.
0: This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and you're listening to the music of Vince Guaraldi, and that is the soundtrack of course to A Charlie Brown's Christmas. Brown's Christmas, well, it's my little girl's favorite. It's my favorite. Heck, it's America's favorite. And we're about to bring you a story about how a Charlie Brown's Christmas almost didn't come to be. And it's brought to you by Norma Zimdahl, herself a terrific performer and composer. And all of our art segments will be brought to you by her because she has a deep appreciation as an artist about free enterprise, property rights, and intellectual property, and how the freedoms that we have in this country have created our great art that's loved worldwide. And now to the story. It seems now almost inconceivable to think of a holiday season without this classic cartoon. But the story of how a Charlie Brown Christmas came to be is itself a classic American story, or more accurately, how it almost didn't come to be. Charles Schultz, the show's creator, had some fundamental ideas about the 30-minute Christmas special. One of them had to do with a reading from the King James Bible's version of the Gospel of Luke. It turns out that as far back as 1965, network bosses, advertising executives on Madison Avenue, and even a few of Schultz's own artistic collaborators thought a Bible reading in a cartoon might just turn off a nation populated with Christians and in a Christmas special, no less. But before that tale gets told, it is worth telling the story of how this national treasure was conceived. It didn't spring from the mind of its creators, but rather from its sponsors. Here is producer Lee Mendelssohn on how things all got started. In 1965, in April,
10: Time magazine ran a cover story with the Peanuts characters. And a few weeks after that, Coca-Cola called through their agency, McCann Erickson, and they said, have you and Mr. Schultz ever thought, and Mr. Melendez, have you ever thought of doing a Charlie Brown Christmas show? And I lied, and I said, oh, absolutely, we've been thinking about it, and blah, blah, blah. This was a Thursday, and they said, well, we have to make a decision on Monday. Could you send us an outline of the show? This was a Thursday. So I called Mr. Schultz, and I called Mr. Melendez, and I said, I think... I have good news and bad news. The good news is I think I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. The bad news is we have to write it tomorrow. So we all got together up in Santa Rosa and came up with an outline for the show and sent it down there on Monday,
0: and they bought it. Schultz and his creative team didn't have a lot of time. Better still, they had some really interesting ideas, some innovative ideas, ideas that didn't make the network suits very happy. First and foremost, there was no laugh track, something unimaginable in that era of television. Schultz thought that the audience should be able to enjoy the show at its own pace, without being cued to laugh. CBS created a version of the show with a laugh track added, just in case Schultz changed his mind. Luckily, he didn't. The second big battle was waged over voiceovers. The network executives were not happy that the Schultz team had chosen to use children to do the voice acting rather than employing adults. Indeed, in this remarkable world created by Schultz, we never hear the voice of a single adult. <laughs> the executives also had a problem with the jazz soundtrack by Vince Guaraldi. They thought the music would not work well for a children's program and that it distracted from the general tone. They wanted something more, well... Young. Here again is TV producer Lee Mendelson on choosing Vince Guaraldi for the special. I wanted to use different kinds of music.
10: Uh, We knew we'd use traditional Christmas music and we would use some Beethoven because Schroeder played Beethoven. But when we did the documentary, we had hired a fellow named Vince Guaraldi to do the music on the documentary and I thought it might be fun to to use some of that music on the Christmas show. And we called Vince and... um, uh, he wrote an opening title song for the show, and I remember I thought maybe we should put some words on it. And I just wrote, scribbled some words down on an envelope: "Christmas time is here, happiness and so forth." And never thought much about it. And so the music became a, a mix of the. And I think the music was critical to, to its acceptance. And um, we thought of different elements about the Christmas tree and so forth, and put it all down the outline. And the outline pretty much is the way the show eventually evolved. And, um, but I think that the Giraldi music was crucial to its success because that was the first time a cartoon had used jazz, had used adult music. And that raised a, a certain level.
0: And last but not least, there was one scene that really irritated the suits at CBS. If you remember, Charlie Brown brings that really ugly little tree out to the center of the stage. Everyone's despondent. And Linus comes in. To save the day, the kids are bickering about the true meaning of Christmas. You remember the scene. And in this scene, what really annoyed the the suits at CBS was the reading of the gospel according to Luke, verses 8 through 14. Let's take a listen to this scene.
2: Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. He shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown.
0: Oh, when CBS executives saw the final product, they were horrified. Again, no laugh track, a jazz soundtrack adults not doing the voices kids doing it and oh my goodness a reading from the actual bible they believed the special was going to be a complete flop they wanted schultz to take out the bible scene they wanted to change the music they wanted all these changes but schultz knew better schultz didn't relent he didn't acquiesce here again is tv producer lee mendelson on the moment he showed cbs this program
10: and i went back very with great fear to cbs and i showed it to It was a week before it was to go on the air and they hated it the two top people just hated it they said you know it's too slow and it's very religious in those days that was a big deal you know back in the 60s and it's not particularly fun and i was just devastated you know because i i didn't think it was (laughs) it was that good either and the head guy there said well we're going to have to run it it's scheduled but unfortunately you know there probably aren't going to be any more and then uh, they had, they said, there's a guy from Time Magazine downstairs that wants to look at it. And they said, but we don't dare show it to him. It's, we don't like it. I said, well, it's going to be worse if you don't show it to him. So we go down and there's a fellow in there and me and we sit and we watch it. And he doesn't say a word and he gets up and leaves. So I come home absolutely with my tail between my legs and I figure
0: we are doomed. The half-hour special aired on Thursday, December 9, 1965, preempting The Munsters and following Gilligan's Island. To the surprise of the executives, 50% of the televisions in the United States tuned in to the first broadcast. Here, Lee Mendelssohn talks about the positive reaction they started getting before and after the show aired. The day before the show, Time Magazine comes out and this fella wrote the most glowing review you could
10: imagine. said it should run forever which shocked all of us. Then it goes on the air and gets like a 45 share. And In those days, there were only three networks. I think we had half the United States tune in who had television. And that Monday, the CBS fella called up and he said, um, well, we're going to buy five, four more Charlie Brown shows, but I wanted you to know that my aunt in New Jersey didn't like it either.
0: That was his, that was his justification. The cartoon was a critical and commercial hit. It won an Emmy and a Peabody. Linus's recitation was hailed by critic Harriet Van Horn of the New York World Telegram, who wrote, quote, Linus's reading of the story of the nativity was, quite simply, the dramatic TV highlight of the season. A Charlie Brown's Christmas is equaled only, perhaps, by the 1966 How the Grinch Stole Christmas in its popularity among young and old alike. Thank God the Grinch-like executives at CBS chose to air the special back In 1965, despite their misgivings, if it had been left to their gut instincts, we would have had one less national treasure to cherish come Christmas time. This is Our American Stories, the story of how Charlie Brown's Christmas special almost didn't happen.